Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, The Great Reversal. It's based upon the lectionary readings for November 1st, 2020. How often, since the COVID-19 pandemic began, have you said, I can't wait until life gets back to normal? I've said it more times than I can count. There's nothing wrong with saying it. Of course, we want to return to the lives we enjoyed before the virus changed everything. Of course, we want to travel again and welcome people into our homes and worship in person in our churches and put away our face masks and send our children to school and hug our loved ones without fearing for their safety. Of course, we want the dread, isolation, uncertainty, and grief of the past year to fade into memory. But during this week when the church celebrates all souls and all saints, and the lectionary invites us to reflect deeply on Jesus' inaugural Sermon on the Mount, I've been asking myself some painful questions. What exactly is normal? Who decides how we define it? What does normal look like to Jesus? And does my vision of normality align with his? Perhaps, like me, you grew up hearing that the Beatitudes are B-attitudes, that is, postures and perspectives that we should strive to adopt in order to earn favors from God. If you still believe this, then please read Matthew 5, 1-12 again, and notice that the passage does not contain a single should, ought, or thou shalt. There is no transactional language in these verses at all, no commandments, no moral injunctions, Rather, what Jesus does is simply describe reality, as in, here are the facts. Here's how the world works. Here is an accurate description of life as it truly is. In other words, here is normal, God's normal. Perhaps, if my interpretation is correct, the essential question to ask about the Beatitudes is not, have I worked hard enough to merit God's blessing? The essential question is, Do I trust that Jesus' description of reality is accurate? Do I believe in Jesus' version of normal life enough to test all of my versions against his? Or don't I? In the Beatitudes, Jesus claims that the poor, the mournful, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure-hearted, the peaceful, and the persecuted are blessed. They are the fortunate ones, the lucky ones, the ones whose lives are aligned with the heart and character of God. They are the ones who will enter heaven, experience comfort, inherit the earth, be filled, receive mercy, see God, and be called the children of God. Do I believe this? The problem, of course, is that God's normal is not the normal I see and experience in the world around me. I live in a world where the loudest, strongest, wealthiest, and most privileged people prey on the less fortunate. I live in a world where greed and selfishness pay big time, while meekness, mercy, and mournfulness earn little more than contempt. I live in a world where securing my own ease and comfort is my right. The rest of creation be damned. But Jesus, in his wisdom, recognizes this disparity and addresses it in the very wording of the Beatitudes. Blessed are, for they will be. The language is prophetic and eschatological. It bridges the present and the future, the now and the not yet, the kingdom that is and the kingdom that is coming. 
The blessing is here. God's favor is now. But its fulfillment, its perfection, still lies ahead. I wonder if this is why the lectionary so wisely gives us Jesus' Sermon on the Mount on All Saints' Day. As we remember and honor those who have gone before us, we celebrate the unbreakable communion between past, present, and future. We draw comfort, resilience, and hope from the fact that countless others have mourned, hungered, thirsted, and grieved in years past, and gone on from their struggles to the fullness of life in God's presence. As religious scholar Tim Beach Verhey puts it, the saints provide a glimpse of God's already in the midst of our not yet. So then, back to the essential question. Do I believe in Jesus' version of normal? Do I believe that the people who care profoundly, the people who yearn, mourn, hunger, thirst, suffer, and speak for justice, are the most fortunate people on earth? Do I see or even look for blessing in the world's most reviled, wretched, starving, grieved, shamed, and broken human beings? Or do I find their desperation, their passion, and their suffering embarrassing? excessive, undignified. The amazing thing about the people Jesus describes in the Beatitudes is that they want. They want without reservation or apology. They want justice. They want peace. They want solace. They want healing. Even in the face of oppression, pain, loss, and sorrow, they do not give up wanting or living in ways that bear witness to that wanting. There is nothing casual, tepid, half-baked, or shallow about them. In other words, what Jesus describes in his sermon is a world turned upside down by passionate conviction, intensity, and desire, an economy of blessing that sounds ludicrous to those who refuse to feel so deeply, a reordering of priority and privilege that the church has found awkward and even offensive for centuries. Do we find it offensive too? If we don't, what then? What should we do next? Wallow in guilt? Romanticize poverty? Avoid joy? I don't think so. The very fact that Jesus spends his days and nights on earth alleviating suffering in every way possible suggests that he does not valorize misery for its own sake. Pain in and of itself is neither holy nor redemptive in the Christian story, and in fact Jesus' ministry is all about healing, abundance, liberation, and wholeness. Perhaps the essential question to ask is a question about trust, about aligning my heart with Christ's. I might begin, for example, by accepting on faith that Jesus is telling me the truth, that his definition of reality is correct, and mine is not. That is to say, I might come clean about the fact that most of the time I don't care nearly as much as the blessed of the Beatitudes care. I am not desperate for God. I am not keenly aware of God's active daily intervention in my life. I am not on my knees with need, ache, sorrow, longing, gratitude, or love. After all, why would I be? I have plenty to eat. I live in a comfortable home. Even during this time of global illness and sorrow, I have both health and health insurance. My children are safe. I have access to a vibrant social, intellectual, and recreational life. I'm not in dire need of, well, anything. In short, there isn't much in my circumstances that leads me to a sense of urgency about ultimate things. I can go for days without talking to God. I can go for days without thinking about God. It's very, very easy, embarrassingly easy, for all things deep and divine to become afterthoughts in my life. 
because God isn't necessary on my 24-7 radar. This isn't because I'm callous, it's because I'm full. So full that I barely register the hunger beneath the fullness. It's because I have easy access to laughter and therefore don't wonder what lessons honest tears might teach me. It's because I'm primed by my cozy life to live in the shallows, unaware of the treasures that await me in the depths. Most of the time, it just plain doesn't occur to me that I would be lost, utterly and wholly lost, without the grace that sustains me. I think what Jesus is saying in this gospel is that I have something to learn about discipleship that my life circumstances will not teach me. Something to grasp about the beauty, glory, and freedom of the Christian life that I will never grasp until God becomes my everything, my all, my go-to, my starting place, and my ending place. Something to humbly admit about the limitations of my privilege. Something to recognize about the radical counterintuitiveness of God's priorities and promises. Something to notice about the obfuscating power of plenty to blind me to my own emptiness. Something to gain from the humility that says, those people I think I'm superior to in every way, they have everything to teach me. Maybe it's time to shut up and pay attention. In a beautiful reflection on Jesus' upside-down kingdom, Frederick Buechner writes this, The world says, mind your own business. And Jesus says, there is no such thing as your own business. The world says, follow the wisest course and be a success. And Jesus says, follow me and be crucified. The world says, drive carefully, the life you save may be your own. And Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The world says, law and order, and Jesus says, love. The world says, get, and Jesus says, give. In terms of the world's sanity, Jesus is crazy as a coot, and anybody who thinks he can follow him without being a little crazy too is laboring less under a cross than under a delusion. This is not prosperity theology. This is not blessing as health, wealth, and happiness. This is a teaching so costly, so soul-rattling, so unpalatable, that most of us will do anything to domesticate or ignore it. Eventually, whether months from now or years from now, our lives will return to normal. We will manufacture and distribute vaccines. We will find better medicines and treatments. We will put our face masks away. We will venture out of our houses and cities. We will grieve the dead and we will heal. But even when that time comes, the challenge and the invitation of Jesus' beatitudes will remain. Will God's normal become ours? Will we align our priorities with God's heart? Will we center, privilege, and bless what matters most to God? Blessed are, for they will be. Lord, give us faith to believe it. For books this week, Dan reviews Alta California, From San Diego to San Francisco, A Journey on Foot to Rediscover the Golden State by Nick Neely. From July 14th to November 6th, 1769, Captain Gaspar de Portola led a Spanish expedition of 63 men and over 50 mules from San Diego to their discovery of the San Francisco Bay, where today a historical marker commemorates them as the first overland expedition across what eventually became California. 
The Bartola expedition was, in fact, a long time after Spain's initial explorations of the California coast, the first of which was by Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo in 1542, followed by Sebastian Viscaño in 1602. Thanks to several journals that they kept, it's possible to recreate much of Bartola's route, and in particular how they established 21 Catholic missions along the 650-mile trail to resupply their venture. The writer Nick Neely, born in 1984, actually grew up in the town of Portola Valley, in the heart of what's now the Silicon Valley. In this book, he chronicles how he retraced Portola's expedition based upon the original journals. The book is only partly about the 21 missions. It's much more of a natural history that connects Alta California of 250 years ago with modern-day California. The contrast is delightfully jarring. Back then, some 300,000 Native Americans lived in today's California, and a major theme of the book is the extermination of these peoples due to the Spanish missions. The original diaries also document the plant and animal life back then, like the great many grizzly bears and antelopes that roamed the land. Much of Neely's walk, by contrast, is through urban landscapes and suburban strip malls. For the most part, he camped along the trail, even in the rain, but he wasn't an idealistic purist. Every now and then he would stay at a Motel 6 or take a bus. He stopped at Legoland in San Diego and went to a baseball game in Anaheim. He gladly enjoyed Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, gas stations to replenish his Gatorade, and the couple times that his wife hiked with him for a few days. For me, Neely's book was a reminder about how self-serving our limited sense of history can be. Think about it. The Spanish were crawling the California coast almost 500 years ago, 230 years before the United States even became a nation. For more on California natural history, I also enjoyed the books by Carrie Gibson El Norte, The Epic and Forgotten Story of Hispanic North America, and Mark Arak's The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California. For movies this week, Dan reviews American Factory. This movie begins with what is now an old story, the closure of a massive GM manufacturing plant in Dayton, Ohio, on December 23, 2008. That closure, which story is told by the same film directors in their 2009 short documentary, The Last Truck, cost the community 10,000 jobs. But then came the possibility of an unlikely savior, when, in early 2014, the Fuyao Glass Company of China took over the plant to manufacture automotive glass. The goal was to meld two cultures together. There were good intentions all around, hope, gratitude, humor, a billion dollars of investment, and state tax breaks. There was also mutual incomprehension and fascination. Virtually every aspect of work and life was bitterly contested. Language, quality, efficiency, safety, and wages that were cut from GM's $29 an hour to FIO's $13 an hour. These many factors coalesced around, surprise, the issue of unionization, which vote had a very conclusive outcome for the 1,300 workers. There is no external narration to the film. The only story told is that by the factory workers, both Chinese and American, both workers and supervisors, both angry and satisfied, all in the context of the newly renovated manufacturing plant. American Factory debuted at the 2019 Sundance Festival and went on to earn the 2020 Academy Award for Best Documentary. At the end of the film, you feel equal parts empathy and anger. Welcome to the world of work in our globalized economy. 
And finally, for poetry this week, Jan Richardson's Blessing That Becomes Empty As It Goes. This blessing keeps nothing for itself. You can find it by following the path of what it has let go, of what it has learned it can live without. Say this blessing out loud a few times and you will hear the hollow places within it, how it echoes in a way that gives your voice back to you as if you had never heard it before. Yet this blessing would not be mistaken for any other as if in its emptying it had lost what makes it most itself. It simply desires to have room enough to welcome what comes. Today, it's you. So come and sit in this place made holy by its hollows. You think you have too much to do, too little time, too great a weight of responsibility that none but you can carry. I tell you, lay it down. Just for a moment, if that's what you can manage at first, five minutes. Lift up your voice in laughter, in weeping, it does not matter, and let it ring against these spacious walls. Do this until you can hear the spaces within your own breathing. Do this until you can feel the hollow in your heart where something is letting go, where something is making way. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for November 1st, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.